Welcome to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Talk radio to inspire, inform, and stimulate. Bringing you enlightened discussions with authors, creatives, innovative business and health professionals, and ordinary people living extraordinary lives. Sharing their expertise and life stories. Making a difference, one word at a time. Now here's your host, Vicki St. Clair. Welcome, everybody. Welcome, welcome. We will end today's show with award-winning author Joseph Alshon. He's best known as a uh, LGBT writer, but also uh, much more importantly to him as a writer, I guess, he's known as a fine literary mystery author. His latest novel, Black Diamond Fall, just released, is part love story, part adventure, part mystery, and it's based on two true stories. You'll hear part one of our conversation today, and we'll bring you part two on October 15th. And talking of October, it was October 2017 when the hashtag MeToo spread virally on social media. It demonstrated worldwide just how pervasive sexual abuse and misconduct is. And sadly, it illustrated how some people think it's no big deal for a woman or a man to be sexually mistreated. After reading Pure, I realized some of the thinking that's behind the marginalization of sexual abuse. Certainly not all of it, but some. Uh, In Pure, the author shows how some groups justify what's commonly termed the rape culture. Last week, I sat down with the author of Pure, journalist and activist Linda K. Klein, to examine aspects of her new book. It's part memoir, part journalism, part cultural commentary, and we explore how a whole generation of young girls and women in the evangelical church were sexually shamed and are still being shamed because of the church's Pure movement. We discuss how that impacted their lives growing up and later in life and what critics of the book are saying. And we'll also hear about the movement behind another hashtag that I hope goes viral too, and that is hashtag break free together. Here's our recorded conversation. My guest in this segment is Linda K. Klein. She's the founder of Break Free Together. She earned a master's degree focused on American evangelical Christian gender and sexuality messaging for girls and has spent over a decade working at the cross-section of faith, gender and social change. And she's joining us today to talk about her new book. It's called Pure, Inside the Evangelical Movement that Shamed a Generation of Young Women and How I Broke Free. Linda K. Klein, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Very interesting read. Um, Lots of questions for you, Linda. Um, Gloria Steinman gives you a great blurb on the the front of the book. She says, Linda K. Klein shows us the system of mind and body shaming, how it works within a religious movement, so culturally and politically influential that it must be understood by us all. So let's begin there, because the evangelical church does have a great deal of cultural and political influence. But I think what's not so obvious unless you're embedded in that movement is what is the driving message behind the evangelical church? Um, You know, when we're selling a product or service, we're looking for the identifying hook, the unique selling proposition. What does that look like for the evangelical church? Hmm. 
I think that the thing that drew me to evangelicalism when I was a young person, which draws many people to it, is this personal relationship with Jesus. You know, there it, we talk about faith very differently in the evangelical community than we talk about it in some other communities. Um, you know, and my mom was an evangelical, you know, when I became a baby, she was, she was uh, a new evangelical, and she had just had a born-again experience. And so when I was quite young, you know, she really raised me in um, the fashion of an evangelical, though we attended Episcopalian churches. And um, so I learned a lot about the personal relationship with Jesus from her. And then when I came across the evangelical church when I was 13 and heard a large group of people all talking about this thing that I had learned in this very intimate relationship with my mom, you know, it felt like coming home in many ways to a faith and a spirituality uh, that felt very familiar and very intimate to me. Right, right. So let's let's dive straight into the purity culture because that's a big part of of your story, and um, it's taken you a long time to overcome some of the aspects of that. Um, so what what do we mean by the purity culture within the evangelical church? Sure. So when I joined evangelicalism, I joined in the early 1990s, and uh, this was the very beginning of the purity movement that um, is responsible for what is now a purity culture. Um, and so, you know, I was an adolescent and at a prime age to be experiencing um, the purity movement. The purity movement was this hyper focus on the importance of purity, sexual purity, uh, for young people, and in particular for girls. And the teaching was that, um, it, you know, it wasn't just about sex, but that sexual expression of any kind, so sexual thoughts or feelings or behaviors of your own made you less pure. However, also, the sexual thoughts and feelings and behaviors of others toward you, particularly men and boys in the community toward you as a girl also potentially made you impure. So we really learned that we were responsible for the non-sexuality of, uh, of everybody. We had to dress in exactly the right way, walk in the right way, talk in the right way, do everything just right to ensure that there would be no sexual expression of any kind outside of the sanctity of marriage. Right. So that puts an awful lot of pressure um, on women in general and especially on young girls because they're seen as the gatekeepers, if you will, to uh, keeping this purity uh, culture, right? Precisely. Yeah. You say, you write in the book, it's not about sex. Um, it, it's about who we are. It, it's about who we're expected to be, who will become if we fail to meet expectations. So again, a heavy burden there. What, what are those expectations? I mean, you're supposed to be pure. So if you stray from that, what does that look like? And what are the consequences? Mm. Yeah, you know, it's so true. The The reality is, is though we talked about sex all the time, we never actually learned anything about sex. Um, really what we were talking about was, uh, was, was you. You know, we were talking about you as a person. Um, if you went too far sexually, you would become impure. If you maintained the sexual propriety to such an extent that no one had thoughts or feelings about you, no one made any sexual advances toward you, you didn't do anything sexual or have any sexual feelings yourself, you, re you remained safe or pure. And um, so, so really that was what you learned about. You know, we learned a lot about 
ourselves and uh, and whether we were good or bad and whether other people determined us good or bad and very little about sex itself um, or um, or sexuality uh, as an illustration one of my interviewees because you know I've done 12 years of interviews with people who were raised in this community as well one of my interviewees actually told me that she read an entire book about masturbation that you know was an evangelical book about masturbation and she finished the book and she said great I got it masturbation is definitely wrong and bad but what is it exactly? <laughs> you know, she'd read an entire book about it, but didn't know what it and was. And still didn't know what it was. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. You know, and so, but the reality is, is that though there was, you know, an absolute ambiguity about everything except for um, the uh, consequence, the only thing that was utterly clear was the consequence of breaking the ambiguous rules. And the consequence was losing our, uh, I would say, our worth in this community because if you're impure in the community you're you're not just seen as um as damaged which you are you go from being um good wife material to lucky if any good christian man ever loves you and that message is repeated often um but you also go from uh being seen as safe to being seen as dangerous um you're categorized as a as a threat to um particularly to men and boys in the community but because men and boys in the community are the leaders because it's a, a gendered um, space, you know, you're a threat to the entire community. It's like men have no control. <laughs> yeah. Really. Um, the onus is all put on the women to keep, to keep them on the straight and narrow here. No, uh, that's, definitely the, that's definitely the impression that we got as girls. Um, and it is also the impression that many of the gentlemen that I've spoken with have said as well, that they um, grew up, uh, learning that they were monstrous um, in many, you know, because of their inability to control their their sexual selves in a way that there's a whole other there's a whole other category of sexual shame that, that men and boys experience. Right, I'm sure, I'm sure. Um, so you, for the book, you spent 12 years in what you call narrative therapy, where you told your story over and over and over. You spent 10 years doing interviews before you started writing the book. Um, I'm wondering, when you went from community to community, were there variances in the strictness of this expectation, or was it pretty straight across the board? That's a great question. Yes, there was a lot of variation in terms of, um, you know, how strict these these messages were, because ultimately it's the community that determines your purity. So if you are in a community um, or happen to interact that day with somebody who has a very strict definition, um, you know, you might be being you might be accused of being a stumbling block to men and boys or of being impure um, based on something as small as uh, as having a, an emotionally intimate relationship with a friend of the opposite sex, whereas others, uh, other communities and other individuals within communities um, would give you a lot more leeway. So there was a lot of variation, but what was very similar was the ultimate teaching of the consequence of breaking the rules. Um, and again, you know, depending, since the rules are determined by your community, you don't know what the rules are, but, um, but everyone was clear about the consequence of, of breaking the rules. And, uh, and that makes me think about this really interesting um, study that a researcher, Donna Freitas, did where she was talking with evangelical college students about sex. And what she found was that there was a tremendous amount of variation among them um, in terms of their, their opinions on um, you know, political issues 
issues and social issues and whether how much they were willing to doubt versus have absolute answers. But the one thing that she found that there was absolute consistency on was, uh, was their belief in the importance of purity and having been taught the importance of purity. So it was very consistent, um, though they might have different definitions of purity. You know, their, their belief about its importance was very consistent, and that's because the purity movement ensured that everyone got that message. You know, we were surrounded by this movement having developed into an industry. So we were, so we were surrounded by purity rings and purity pledges and purity balls and purity curricula and purity videos. Um, and really these products um, made it impossible for us to have any ambiguity about uh, the importance of, of, of this um, this uh, uh, being this thing right. um, in in association with our being a Christian. Right, right. And for a number of years, it was funded uh, by federal uh, government. The federal government um, provided a lot of money for abstinence-only before marriage messaging, and it took a little while for that to, um, to trickle to some of the evangelical purity purveyors. Um, but yes, eventually it did, and, and that, is, um, that is, I think, what allowed for uh, the movement to become an industry, because now there was some real substantial money. Right, right. And then I understand that ended during some at some point during the Obama administration, because studies were finding that, that this messaging wasn't really having that great an impact. Um, but reading your book, it, it seems as though it certainly had an impact on you who were and people like you who were embedded in the evangelical church. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, unfortunately, it wasn't ended. It was cut dramatically, um, about cut in half. But there's still a great deal of money um, from the federal government that goes toward absence only before marriage messaging, um, some of which, uh, you know, uh, looks very, very similar to what I was raised with in my evangelical youth group and my interviewees were. And, um, and yes, you know, the impact, you know, it doesn't have, research shows that, um, that this messaging doesn't meaningfully delay the first time that you have sex and doesn't meaningfully decrease the number of sexual partners you have overall, but um, research is finding that particularly when this messaging is taught in religious communities where it's taken quite seriously, that it is incredibly effective at something else, which I experienced and saw in my interviews over and over again, and that is creating shame. And, you know, the shame manifests in, you know, it's not bashfulness and it's not shyness. You know, the way that it manifests is, uh, you know, as anxiety and as fear and something that I heard again and again in my interviews and have experienced myself is that sometimes that anxiety and fear, the manifestation of that shame can become so extreme that, um, that people are having PTSD-like experiences as adults in association with their bodies, their sexualities, their sexual feelings or sexual choices, sometimes even in association with walking into a church where they have been shamed sexually so many times. Yes, and you begin the book with your own story of how it affected your health because you were having pain and you were too ashamed, you were too, uh, too fearful to ask for help. Yeah, you know, I it, it's a... It's because I had this sort of um, narrative that good girls suffer silently. And I had been suffering silently, having been shamed for a very long time and not complaining about that, you know, at least not outwardly very often. Um, and I 
did something very similar when I started to have physical pain. I took the same logic that I had um, taken to my sexual self, which was that I had to conquer my sexual feelings and conquer my body and have my spiritual life, you know, win the competition with my body for my attention. And I, and when I started having pain, I did the same thing. Um, I was not taken seriously by doctors for quite some time, which is very common, especially among young women. And, um, and I took that as a sign that I was being bad and complaining too much. And so I started putting less attention on getting better and more attention on suffering better, um, you know, trying to conquer my body um, with spirit, spiritual um, uh, joy through suffering. And, uh, and ultimately what that did is it um, allowed me to be uh, not taken seriously even more because I wasn't fighting for people to take me seriously. Um, and, uh, and ultimately I, I almost died. Um, because this Crohn's disease that I had went ignored. And, uh, and generally speaking, Crohn's disease should not become terminal because you should be able to treat it. Um, and, and, I, and I actually was very, very close to dying because it was so, so untreated. Right, right. Well, I want to, uh, you touched on teachings a little earlier, and I want to go back to that when we uh, come back from break. We need to take a very quick break. My guest is Linda K. Klein. Uh, her new book is called Pure, Inside the Evangelical Movement that Shamed a Generation of Young Women and How I Broke Free. Great book. We'll be right back. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Parkinson's disease affects as many as one million people in the United States. At the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, it's our mission to beat this disease. To learn about the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, or if you want to help support our work, visit our website, pdf.org or call us at 800-457-6676. In the Northwest, contact the Northwest Parkinson's Foundation at nwpf.org. 180 over 111 and I had a stroke. I couldn't speak or walk. 150 over 90 and I had a stroke. This is what high blood pressure sounds like. You might not feel its symptoms, but the results from a stroke are far from silent. Get back on your treatment plan or talk with your doctor to create a plan that works for you. Go to loweryourhpp.org. Head to toe, everything's changed. Brought to you by the American Stroke Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. At Sundown Communications, we find that most of our clients are brilliant at what they do, but they lack the time and resources to write and create business messaging that delivers results. That's where we come in, providing a diverse range of professional copywriting services for fresh strategic web content, PR, advertising and promotion, marketing, speeches, and much more. Call us today so you can focus on what you do best, and we'll do the rest. Call 800-495-7617. That's 800-495-7617. Radio is very competitive. Shows soar in popularity and then flame out. Sometimes, however, a real connection is made with an audience, and success blooms year after year. For over a decade, Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair has built a loyal following thanks to inspiring and stimulating conversation. Longevity, loyalty, exclusivity. Smart advertisers seek it out. With Vicki's valuable audience, the search is over. Discover the affordable, effective ways to advertise your business. Log on to Conversations 
conversationslive.net. That's conversationslive.net today. Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Inspiring, innovative, and a great place to advertise. Learn more at conversationslive.net. Talk radio for the heart and soul. Alternative Talk 1150. And welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. And my guest in this segment is Linda K. Klein. Her new book is called Pure, Inside the Evangelical Movement that Shamed a Generation of Young Women and How I Broke Free. And Linda, before the break, I said I wanted to talk about how this is taught to young men and women. And and actually, is it still being taught this way? Um, but you gave a great example in the book of what you call object lessons, uh, where you shared the story of the Oreo cookies and how it's passed around the classroom, um, which was quite horrifying to me, but um, a normal practice for for you as a student in the evangelical church. I wonder if you'd talk to us about that. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, this is a, so there, the way it's taught is both overtly and covertly. Um, it's more commonly taught covertly, so these messages are embedded into stories, embedded into how you see other people get treated, how you yourself are treated, um, you know, and so on and so forth. But, you know, on occasion, it is taught very overtly, and the Oreo cookie example and other object lessons are a perfect example of that. So, uh, so this is an example where you had um, uh, one of my interviewees told me about this. She was with a group of her peers, and she had a, the woman in the front of the room uh, hold up a cookie in front of the room, an Oreo cookie, and say, okay, who wants this Oreo cookie? Everybody raises their hand, of course, and then she passes it around the room, and she instructs every person to either spit on it or drop it on the ground. Then it gets up to the front of the room again. It's disgusting. She holds the cookie back up, and she says, now who wants this cookie? Nobody raises their hand. Mm. Then she explains that this is an illustration of a, a girl or a woman before she has ever been sexually touched and after she has been sexually touched. You know, each person she has interacted with making her more and more disgusting and unwanted by any reasonable person. Mm. So... This is this is a horrifying teaching, but I can give you about 20 uh, different object lessons that I've heard about, <laughs> you know, using all kinds of different food and all kinds of other objects. Um, and I think it's a good illustration of the way in which the purity message ultimately objectifies girls and women. You know, we learn a lot about how society objectifies girls and women by teaching them that their sexuality and their sexual attractiveness is the most important thing about them, which it does. <laughs> but, um, but the reality is, is that purity culture does the exact same thing, you know, by, by emphasizing the importance of girls' non-sexuality and women's non-sexuality in order to maintain their worth. They are also objectifying them and telling them that their body is the most important thing about them. And ultimately, it's the same teaching. This is something that um, Jessica Valenti in her book, The Purity Myth, talks about. You know, we actually have a much larger societal problem with, um, with, Uh, objectifying women and girls that is embedded into both of these cultures. Um, You know, in my community, I learned that there were, you know, pure girls and women and impure girls and women. But in society, we hear about good girls and bad girls, and we're not talking about how often they volunteer. (laughs) You know, this is a much larger problem that affects 
many, many more of us. And the evangelical community can show us what happens when we take this toxic shaming and teach it to girls um, in heavy, heavy doses, how that impacts them as they become adults can illustrate for us um, how more of us are being impacted by having taken in differing levels of this same toxic messaging in society, um, which isn't healthy for anybody. Right, right. Let's touch on uh, stereotypical gender roles because it goes beyond just sex, this purity movement beyond just sex. Um, they have a role, women and girls have a role to be acceptable. And uh, that's basically, it sounds to me from reading the book as though they're totally subservient to their husbands. Um, they're just there to please their man and provide for their wants and needs. And men are the leaders, the strong ones. Um, they're seen as weak if, they, if they're not that way. Uh, is that right? That's the expectation. That certainly doesn't play out in every household. Um, oftentimes there's a gap between the stated expectation and, and the reality of people's lives. Right. Um, but it certainly plays out that way in many households. And you're absolutely right that, that when it is not playing out that way, your likelihood of being shamed are very high. Both women being shamed for being too strong, for being too vocal, for being too much of leaders, you know, and also, as you mentioned, men being shamed for not being masculine enough, um, not being the leader, not being, not keeping their woman in check. Um, there's a, you know, so whether or not this is playing out in your life, um, you know, is, is a subject of the communities, another subject in which that the community assesses um, and can shame you for if they don't see you as living it out correctly. Right, right. And this shame, I mean, it's prevalent in America. If you've read, and I know that that you have, um, because you talk about it in your book, Linda, um, Brene Brown's work on shame, uh, and men in particular suffer with that because they're not supposed to feel shame in the real world. Um, but it's very debilitating, and I know your whole purpose in talking about this and writing the book and talking with so many people who uh, were impacted by this um, is to raise awareness. Um, I'm wondering, you talk uh, also about how sexual uh, uh, abuse is mishandled. So when you were talking with people um, throughout the 10, 12 years you were interviewing, what kind of stories came up there that, that surprised you? Yeah, abuse has come up a lot in my interviews, and one of the reasons it's come up because is because so many people identify abuse as um, something that uh, that was enabled and was silenced by the purity message. Um, you know, we really are taught in the community, as as we mentioned before, that women and girls are responsible for all sexual expression, um, that they inspire sexual expression in men and boys. Um, and so are, are ultimately responsible for not inspiring it. And that logic comes back uh, in abuse cases regularly. Um, you know, oftentimes the first question, one of my interviewees was asked by her pastor father as an example, um, that is quite common. Um, you know, she, she came to her parents and told them that she had been gang raped. And her father's first question was, what were you wearing? <laughs> and you know, as horrifying as that example is, it is a clear reflection of what we see and hear all over society, because um, because ultimately this 
this logic, this um, purity ethic, I would say, is our default national sexual ethic. And whether or not we agree with it intellectually, um, we have done a, a really poor job as a society offering an alternative healthy sexual ethic. So it remains our sexual ethic, even if we disagree with it, because we haven't um, really replaced it with anything else. So rape cases are often assessed in exactly the same way as consensual um, sexes, um, using the purity ethic. Um, you know, the woman and girl ultimately being responsible for keeping both herself safe and for maintaining the safety of everyone else. Right, right. So. You know, the big question is, um, if there's so much shame attached to this, and you write in detail about how dreadful you felt, you I mean, at one point broke up with somebody you very deeply cared about because you thought it was God's will and it would make God happy. Um, and I'm guessing the answer is that they're in, you're indoctrinated into this and don't know any different. I'm just thinking back to when I was a girl and, you know, my dad could be quite Victorian and sometimes he'd have expectations that, you know, you're a girl, you'll do that and the boy will do that. And my answer was always, why? And when I got, because he's a boy, it's like, so, but of course I got into a lot of trouble <laughs> for that too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, the reality is, I think one of the reasons that I am where I am is because I, um, I, I was always questioning it, even while I was in it. Um, you know, but the thing, and so I think that allowed me to later be able to question it when I was no longer in it, um, in a in a deeper way. But you know, but here's the thing, you know, to hear these messages. Um, you know, when everything else around you uh, gives you alternative. Um, logic, mm -hmm. um, you know, and to know that ultimately at the end of the day, you're loved regardless, um, you know, that is one thing. Um, to hear these messages in a community that, um, where everybody considers these messages to be holy, um, and in a community that teaches you that, um, that, that those outside of the community are not to be trusted. Those outside of the community are at best misguided by um, evil, and at worst uh, have your uh, bad in have bad intentions for you because they are guided by evil. So you might be aware of other messages, but everyone that you trust and everyone that you're told you're allowed to trust all has the same opinion. Now they might not actually have the same opinion; they might actually feel something quite differently. But the community um, ensures that there is no space for. Um, for doubting these very important tenets like purity. Um, there are many, many people who I've interviewed, uh, and myself included, who when they started to question this ethic, um, had a, a few conversations with people that made it very clear that folks were like, sure, you're welcome to question this. You're, you know, the door is right there. <laughs> um, <laughs> you're welcome to leave at any point. No one's holding you here. But so long as you're here, you will hold to these teachings. You will not um, uh, you will not talk about doubting them, you know, right, right. um, if you want to talk about this, you need to go. And, um, so, so within a community like that, you get the impression, especially as a young person that everyone agrees, um, that this is the perspective of everyone who matters, everyone in your community, everyone who's going to heaven. <laughs> um, and it's very difficult to, it's very difficult to, um, to, 
to imagine to imagine being lovable and valuable um, when when everyone around you is telling you that you won't be if this happens. Right, right. Uh, you write some of your critics say that um, that they were happy with the way things were and, and still are. Um, they they point to you and say, well, you turned out okay. Um, so what's the big deal? Um, so and and I know also in your book in the intro, I think it was you you talk about your parents and thank them for rolling with this book because it's kind of gone against what they believe in. Um, but how are you handling that criticism um, from those who say things like that? Yeah, you know the. Um... The reality is, is that I am doing quite well today. They're they're right, <laughs> but the reason I'm doing quite well today is because I went on this 12-year journey. You know, for a long time, when I was in my early 20s, when I was going through this, I thought that I was alone. I thought that I was broken. I thought that I would never have a healthy relationship. Um, you know, I was really terrified. And it wasn't until I went back and started talking to some of my girlfriends that I'd grown up with in the evangelical church and started telling them about my sexual fear and shame and anxiety, and then, you know, started hearing them tell me their stories, which mirrored my own, that I started to realize I wasn't alone. Mm. And that realization was the beginning of my healing. And ultimately, you know, as you mentioned earlier, these past 12 years of doing interviews, you know, I, I joke that it was narrative therapy because, um, because it was that healing for me. It was that healing for me to know I'm not alone. And many of my interviewees, you know, said it was healing for them as well and, and described it as life-changing because sh shame has this, um, you know, uh, effect on people where we tend to hide and silence the things yes. that we're shamed for. And so this lie that we were all alone was pervasive. And, um, and it wasn't until, you know, we started to step out of the shadows of our own inner shame and our own inner lives that the healing began. And, and that's really what is responsible for my being healthy and happy today. Um, it wasn't the purity message that was so good for me. It was the um, community that I was able to form of people who, um, who were together resisting the, um, the deep shame that the purity message um, created in us. Yeah, yeah. So I'm thinking, you know, if somebody is listening to this and they want to break free and they don't think they have the courage or the knowledge or resources to break away, and it doesn't have to be a purity issue uh, that we're talking about here, there are myriad ways of, of controlling people and myriad of ways that people are held hostage, if you will, to, to beliefs that they've had for a long time. I'd like to look at how they break free because you formed this organization called Break Free Together. I'd like to chat a little about that if we can. Absolutely. Yeah, I love I love that you want to chat about that because it is so important. I mean, that's why I wrote this book. I wrote this book so that other people would realize that they weren't alone without having to spend 12 years <laughs> you know, right. talking to other people to get there. Um, you know, and ultimately, um, Break Free Together, what it does is it tries to take the experience that my interviewees and I had in these one-on-one -on -one intimate spaces um, and to create other ways for people to have that. Um, so using storytelling. So one of the things that we're doing is we have a dinner, um, a dinner model where people can bring us um, out to, to lead a, a large dinner to have these conversations. Um, you know, we also have, uh, you know, something very simple. I encourage everyone to... Um, to tell 
somebody that you trust about what your real thoughts and feelings and struggles and concerns are. And the big thing, you know, that I make want to make clear is that this should not be someone who you know is invested in you thinking or believing a particular thing. And you know who those people are. You know, you know those people that you could go to um, and tell your truth to, and you're 75% you're sure of what their response is going to be, and it's not going to be just listening. It's going to be telling you, um, okay, well, thanks for sharing that, but you should be feeling this. Right. I'm not talking about going to those people. Um, I'm talking about finding a friend, finding a sister, finding a brother, somebody who will really just listen and allow you to to um, to speak your own truth, you know, and and to identify something that we're so often taught to ignore in the evangelical community, which is your gut, you know, your gut beliefs, your gut feelings, your gut, um, uh, uh, the voice of God that you hear inside of you, though it might differ from the voice of God that your pastor is representing. Um, and, you know, and, and break free together if you don't have someone in your life or if you're ready to come into a slightly larger community also other offers other opportunities. Like I have a P.O. box where people can send me postcards that tell their story um, that I post up online using an Instagram account called Break Free Together and using the hashtag Break Free Together so that people can join a community conversation online without necessarily having to have their online identities tied to it. They don't even have to sign the postcard, you know? I think that's um, awesome. So I think that's awesome because a lot of people don't want their name put to it. So I think that's a great absolutely. thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And if people are ready, you know, they're welcome to do it on their own and, and just use that hashtag break free together to find other people. But yeah, there has to be a way for people to do it at the stage that they're ready for. Right. So um, this was very, I mean, you grew up in this in the 80s, 90s. Um, it is still going on, but is it changing at all? Is it coming into the 21st century at all? It's mm, a great question. You know, I um, have talked with a lot of evangelicals, and I really feel like on the ground, and when I say on the ground, I mean the people who are in the pews, the people who are youth pastors, who are working with young people, who are um, evangelical college chaplains, who are working with people at the early stages of adulthood. I feel like those people, when I talk with them, they get it. You know, they're like, yes, I see this shame. I feel this shame. I may not have ever talked about that with anyone, but you saying it doesn't take me by any great surprise. You know, I think of my sister's story. I think of my student's story. I think of my own story. And there seems to be a recognition on the ground of the church's complicity in creating these states of shame. Um, however, I don't hear the leaders uh, of evangelical um, institutions uh, talking about this. I hear them reiterating the purity message right now. Um, and uh, some people are even pointing to the shame and acknowledging it and then blaming the people's um, sin or shamefulness, uh, you know, saying that that's why they're experiencing shame, which I think is particularly insidious because what they're doing is they're pointing to the thing that the messaging has created um, and then saying, well, the reason that you're experiencing that is because you didn't live up to the messaging. So they are sending people further down the shame spiral um, while acknowledging Instead of acknowledging that they they um, you know created the shame, they're acknowledging the shame and then telling people it's your fault. 
Right, right. Where this will go is a really great question. I would love to see people on the ground come into greater and greater voice. I think that is what's going to make real change. Absolutely, because shame, uh, as you touched on earlier, it, it, you know, it thrives in the dark. It thrives in a cave, if you will. So we need to bring it out, shine more light on it, get people talking about it and uh, realizing it's not them at all. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yes, yes. Amen. <laughs> so um, I know uh, we want to use the hashtag Break Free Together. You've got a great website, uh, lindakklein.com. They can find out more about um, Break Free Together up there too. What's a final thought you'd like to leave our listeners with today, Linda? I so appreciated this conversation. Um, I think the last thing I want to say is that, you know, this really is about the long-lasting damage that the sexual shaming messages girls learn in the religious community does to adults' lives. Um, you know, and and that, that can look, um, it, it can touch anybody's life. You know, I have interviewees, some of whom are virgins. I have interviewees who waited to have sex until marriage. You know, some even actually waited to have their first kiss until marriage. And then I have others who chose and are choosing to have sex outside of marriage. And, you know, it's not the choices that determine whether someone experiences shame or sex or, or, or fear or shame, shame around sex or fear and anxiety around sex and sexuality. It is the messaging. And I want to, I wanted to say that as the last message, because I want to combat the shaming message that you're the problem. So many people, um, you know, feel like they're experiencing this because they did something wrong or they are something wrong. Mm. But when I look at my interviewees, they did all kinds of different things, <laughs> you know, including some of them doing just what they were told they were supposed to do. And yet the shame is still there. Right. It isn't you. You know, the problem is what you were taught. Right. Well, Linda K. Klein, uh, important work uh, in Pure, inside the evangelical movement that shamed a generation of young women and how I broke free. I certainly enjoyed talking with you and I thank you for being with us today. Thank you. I enjoyed the conversation as well. And listeners can find out more about Linda K. and Klein and her work at lindakklein.com. Stay with us. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Break free. This is Martha Norwalk. Every Sunday morning, beginning at 9 a.m., thanks in part to Dr. Nels Rasmussen, we cover the world of animals. This week, September 30th, it's an encore behavior training and healing Sunday with me. Lots of great pet food and flea product information, an update on the cat killings in Thurston County, blessings of the animals' locations, Janice from New Pro Supplements, and more on Martha Norwalk's Animal World, Sunday morning, 9 a.m. to noon, right here on Alternative Talk, a.m. 1150. 180 over 111, and I had a stroke. I couldn't speak or walk. This is high blood pressure. Get back on your plan. Go to loweryourhbp.org. Brought to you by the American Stroke Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. At Sundown Communications, we find that most of our clients are brilliant at what they do, but they lack the time and resources to write and create business messaging that delivers results. That's where we come in providing a diverse range of professional copywriting services for fresh strategic web content, PR, advertising and promotion, marketing, speeches, and much more. Call us today so you can focus on what you do best, and we'll do the rest. Call 800-495-7617. That's 800-495-7617.
Looking for unconditional love, an exercise buddy, or a great listener? Paws has the dog or cat of your dreams, just waiting to meet you. We've made thousands of perfect matches since 1967 because everyone needs a warm, safe place to call home. Find out more today at paws.org or call 425-787-2500. Conversations Live with Vicki Sinclair airs live every Monday at noon. And now you can also catch the show during drive time at 6 a.m. every Friday. Hear from New York Times bestselling authors, innovative business leaders, cutting-edge health and wellness professionals, award-winning journalists, filmmakers, explorers, and adventurers. Tune in to Conversations Live with Vicki Sinclair, Mondays at noon Pacific time and Fridays at 6 a.m. Right here on Alternative Talk 1150. Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Ordinary people leading extraordinary lives. Advertise. Learn more at conversationslive.net. Alternative Talk 1150. Yeah, hashtag break free together. LindaKKlein.com. Find out more there. And coming up next, we are talking with novelist uh, and writer and publisher uh, Joseph Olshan. His latest book is Black Fall Mountain. I sat down with him last week, and here is our conversation. Coming up in this segment, we're talking with Joseph Alshan. He's the award-winning author of 10 novels, including Clara's Heart, which was made into a feature film starring Whoopi Goldberg. For six years, he was a professor of creative writing at New York University, where he taught both graduate and undergraduate courses, and he's now the editorial director of Delphinium Books. In addition to writing novels, you can find uh, Joseph Olshan's work in places like New York Times, Harper's Bazaar, People Magazine, and many other outlets. His latest novel is Black Diamond Fall. Joseph Olshan, welcome. Thanks for having me. It is my pleasure. And um, so this book is described as a, a lush, evocative literary novel, a portrait of uh, a love affair between a younger and older man and a riveting mystery. So lots going on in there. <laughs> Um, but it was actually inspired, I read, by the actual disappearance of a student at Middlebury College and the vandalism of the nearby Robert Frost homestead, two, two stories there. But so what was it about those two true stories that inspired you to put them together in a book and fictionalize it? Well, the, both of these events um, happened in Vermont, which is a, a state that's mostly rural. And um, so when small events big events happen in small states, there's a huge amount of resonance, and um, they're talked about, um, they they occupy the airwaves, um, they occupy conversations between people, um, dinner table conversations. So, of course, that's perfect for a writer um, who wants to take events like this and sort of blow them up um, and dramatize them in, in, in a novel. Uh, I had heard about this incident um, of the student disappearing from um, uh, a friend of mine who was the psychic who was called in to try and solve his disappearance. Oh, interesting. Uh, yes, and what happened was this is a guy from out west who had come to, to Middlebury and just couldn't um, go home for the holidays, so he was staying on campus during winter break, and there were very few people on campus, and the, it, the, um, the machine had shut down, and so um, he came and go... He came and went without um, without a lot of sort of notice. And one night he was with a friend and went off for a walk and never came back. 
and um, then they, they had a search for him and couldn't find him. And six months later, um, his body was found at the bottom of the Otter Creek, which was running through, um, which runs, a river that runs through Middlebury. Mm. And so the character that uh, assumes this role somewhat, I mean, he's a very different character, but he, he's the person who goes missing, Luke Flanders. Um, tell us how you came up with him and how you developed him as a character, because I know throughout your books, um, characterization is very important to you. Yes, it is very important to me, and and I'll be I'll be totally honest. Um, I, I I this was based on a, a real person um, that I was close to for a while, and I was kind of, kind of looking for a vehicle to to write about to write about this person, and 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 that's why and that's how I sort of happened on the character um, of the of the young man who disappeared. So I, I took a very personal experience and I infused it in. Um, this very, this very sort of well-known public event. Um, the thing about me is that I, all my novels have a certain autobiographical nature. I can't really write. I couldn't sit down and write a story just because I think it's a great story. There has to be a, 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 a large investment of autobiography. So, wanting to write about this relationship that I had, I needed to find a vehicle that would make it, that could bring it sort of more in the in, in the mainstream. Mm. It's writing about a relationship. So I used the, the sort of the drama of, of someone's disappearance, but I infused it with personal with, with, with personal experience and observation. Okay. So then my next question uh, based on that then would be um, Sam Solomon is the older man in the story. Is, is that somewhat based on you? To a certain extent, yeah. I would have to say that's, that he is, yeah. Now, he gets, uh, right at the start of the book, I'm not giving anything away here, it's in all of the publicity material, there's an accident, a skiing accident, and I know that you're an expert skier, so that part of you, uh, that part of you is infused in there, right? Yes, it is, and, and I have actually had accidents, although not to the degree um, that Sam has in the novel. Um, and within the last 10 years, I tore, I've torn a, a, a tendon that, that attaches to my bicep, and then up at Whistler, I tore the, um, all, um, the muscles in one of my calves, uh, calf, calves from, from, from skiing. Mm. Um, so, I mean, I've had two accidents. I, I sort of drew on them um, to kind of inform what is a much bigger accident in the novel. Right, right. And the novel's called Black Diamond Fall. I heard you had a different name for this originally. Is that true? Yes, it is true. It was called Wolverine Cirque, which is an actual uh, ski off-piste um, ski run in Utah. And um, when the book was placed with the publisher, the publisher came back to me and said, you can't use this title because if you do a Google search for it, the um, cartoon character Wolverine comes married. <laughs> and and as, as a publisher myself, I, it, what he said to me had, had immediate resonance. And I said, okay, I'll look for a different title. So the mountain, I've renamed the mountain uh, Black Diamond Fall, and of course, there is no such mountain. But Black Black Diamond is a, is, is is connotes the ski uh, an expert ski run, and uh, Black Diamond Fall, to me, I thought sounded euphonious. But also, the um, the one of the protagonists actually falls on a Black Diamond run, so it, it kind of took on more. The, the new title actually took on more resonance than the old title had. And that was the first part of a conversation I had with Joseph Ulshan. And uh, we're going to bring you the second part of that conversation on October 
15th. So you can find out more about Joseph and his work at josephalshan.com. Um, in our second uh, part of our conversation, he shares uh, what it takes to elevate a novel from a mystery novel to a literary mystery. He shares what he calls his deficiencies as a writer and how he overcomes them and what he means when he says the gay fiction market is shrinking and why we're heading to what he calls a multi-culti market. And since Joseph Alshan is also an editorial director in the publishing world, he's at uh, Delphinium Books, uh, I could not uh, fail to ask him what's, what's his view of the publishing world right now and why he chose to publish his 10th book without an agent. Would he recommend it? Would he do it again? Well, check back with us October 15th and you'll find out more. And by the way, he is coming to Seattle um, October 18th to University Bookstore, and I'll remind you about that uh, closer to the date. And um, going back to our first guest today, um, I think this is such powerful work. The book, of course, was called Pure, Inside the Evangelical Movement that Shamed a Generation of Young Women and How I Broke Free by journalist and activist uh, Linda K. Klein. And, um, of course, she's formed this organization called Break Free Together. You can find out more about that on her website. And um, I just was, uh, I was really quite shocked to understand what was behind the pure movement from her perspective. She did. She does have her critics always, of course. Um, but I was really shocked to um, to learn more about that and, and see what was really behind that movement. And I'd, I'd love to hear your opinion. I mean, I'd love to hear what you think of that. You can call me at 800-495-7617 and leave a voice message. Uh, I'd love to know what you think of her work and that movement and maybe other related subjects around that. So, again, 800-495-7617 is that number. And you can find out more about Linda Kay and the Break Free Together movement at lindakklein.com. Well, that just about brings us uh, up to the end of today's show. And um, as always, of course, I want to thank Eric Ryder, who's keeping us live on the air as usual. Uh, could not do this without him. And we normally, I normally push the interviews right to the end of the show. And there's little time to thank him on air, but, but I do privately. Um, so here's a public acknowledgement. Thank you so much, Eric. We very much appreciate what you do for us. And um, so you can find me if you have questions or comments. And I, again, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, questions or comments, you can email them to info at conversationslive.net. Info at conversationslive.net. That's conversations is plural. Or you can call 800-495-7617. And you'll also find us on Facebook at Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. And on Twitter at Vicki St. Clair. All right, we're going to see you next week. Until then, live well, live strong. Radio is very competitive. Shows soar in popularity and then flame out. Sometimes, however, a real connection is made with an audience, and success blooms year after year. For over a decade, Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair has built a loyal following thanks to inspiring and stimulating conversation. Longevity, loyalty, exclusivity. Smart advertisers seek it out. With Vicki's valuable audience, the search is over. Discover the affordable, effective ways to advertise your business. Log on to Conversations Live. Live.net. That's conversationslive.net today. 
Conversations Live with Vicki Sinclair airs live every Monday at noon. And now you can also catch the show during drive time at 6 a.m. every Friday. Hear from New York Times bestselling authors, innovative business leaders, cutting-edge health and wellness professionals, award-winning journalists, filmmakers, explorers, and adventurers. Tune in to Conversations Live with Vicki Sinclair, Mondays at noon Pacific time and Fridays at 6 a.m. Right here on Alternative Talk 1150.